0: This is a podcast from BBC Studios, BBC Studios, a commercial, subsidiary a commercial subsidiary of the BBC. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
2: Welcome to the first ever episode of the BBC Earth podcast. It's a podcast all about nature. Over the series, we'll be bringing you stories about the wild and beautiful natural world. Stories from unexplored places, about some pretty amazing animals and the people who love them. The theme for this first episode is Beginnings, which I think is the perfect way to kick off a brand new podcast. And what better way to begin with stories of beginnings than in the first cold streaks of light at the dawning of a new day.
1: I listen to the dawn chorus in the way that I would listen to a piece of music. So sometimes I will drift through the different melodies and then sometimes I'll tune in to a particular solo that a robin might be doing or a wren might be doing. The dawn chorus is really a audio picture of the place, of the habitat, so the dawn chorus varies from place to place. A woodland dawn chorus is very different to the dawn chorus next to the sea. I particularly like um, the waders' dawn chorus. Very
2: few of us get up early enough to hear the birds sing in the dawn. And even fewer
1: of us decide to sing back. But this woman does. My name is Hannah Tuliki. I'm an artist, composer and performer... And a lot of my work deals with the mimesis, the imitation or emulation of the more-than-human world.
2: Earlier this year, Hannah and her little flock of performers, Lucy Duncombe and Norea Beyo, took part in the BBC's celebration of International Dawn Chorus Day. As the birds sang, they sang back.
3: Why do birds sing at all? There are two main reasons. One is to attract mates, and the other is to defend their territories from rivals.
2: That's Andy Radford, Professor of Behavioural Ecology at the University of Bristol.
3: Why dawn is... It's a time of day when sound might transmit better. It's often stiller at that time in the morning, also there's a a theory that if there's a slightly heavier layer of air a little bit above the ground, sound might bounce along effectively and, and transmit further compared to other times of the day. If you listen to the dawn chorus, you can absolutely hear different species starting at different times. Species that are tending to spend their time near the canopy start earlier because it gets lighter up there sooner than it does near the ground in the denser undergrowth.
2: So the birds use the morning to sing to each other. And some people, like Hannah, sing to the birds. But can it ever really be a two-way thing? Could we ever have a conversation?
1: My most successful interactions have been with ravens and with cuckoos. I was in uh, southwest Finland near to Tampere maybe a couple of years ago and I went for a walk in an old oak forest. It was in the winter and the snow was on the ground and I started to call a gallic raven call into the forest. Not expecting anything to happen but then a raven began to call back to me and flew closer and
4: closer.
1: It was just an incredibly magical experience and since then I've been calling ravens when I go into their habitat and it it really works. It's quite... um, It's quite special to be able to have that interaction with another being as if having a conversation, but obviously I don't know uh, what the meaning of the conversation is.
2: Even if you never get up early enough to hear the dawn chorus, there's one beginning you can't help be curious about. Our own. Where did we come from?
5: I guess one of the first things that we look at as anthropologists is when apes became bipedal. We used to use brain size to distinguish that, and now we know that a larger brain size came much later in human evolution than bipedalism did. This
2: is Dr. Jill Preetz
5: As to when something is A human? That's a good question. I think that paleoanthropologists would actually have some discussion as to what the definition of human is. Jill's a professor of anthropology at Texas State University. I'm specifically a biological anthropologist, and within that, I'm a primatologist. You
2: might think that paleoanthropology, the study of early humans, is all about fossils, bones, and fragments of old tools. But some paleoanthropologists, like Jill, take a different approach. She studies chimps, our closest living ancestors, in a place
5: called Fongoli in Senegal in West Africa. I started out studying chimpanzees in a savanna because we think that much of early human or pre-human evolution occurred in a similar type of habitat, a really dry, hot and open habitat. So I was really interested to see how apes adapt or adjust to the pressures that they have to deal with, high temperature, scarce water, because they're our closest living relative, understanding how the chimpanzees react to these pressures can at least provide some hypotheses that we can pose to try to better understand early hominins. Chimps are
2: usually pretty wary of humans, but Jill's spent the last two decades habituating the Fongoli troop, getting them used to having a little group of humans watching them quietly from the background. They act completely naturally around her and her team. So in 2016, when a BBC natural history team wanted to find a group of chimps to film... They went straight
6: to Jill. Without her and her team, I just don't think that there would have been a hope of us even remotely filming this film. That's Rosie Thomas. As in my name is? Okay. My name is Rosie Thomas and I was the producer-director on the chimpanzee episode of Dynasties. Dynasties is a BBC TV series,
2: the story of five different animal families struggling to keep themselves and each other alive. Rosie spent two years out in Fongoli, and she saw firsthand some of the behaviours that Jill studies.
6: They do a lot of behaviours, and this is why the scientist studies them, that are quite reminiscent of early man, you know, spear hunting, for example. They make spears and they
5: hunt uh, bush babies in tree holes with these spears, which no other group of chimps anywhere does. They hunt with tools, they use water, they use caves, um, they're active at night, and all these things were behaviours that I didn't predict, so I knew they would be different in some ways, but... I, I never predicted that you would see, for example, hunting with tools.
6: They make them out of branches on the trees and they snap them off and then they kind of peel off the ends to kind of fashion the end into a spike. Yeah, they're really quite adept at doing it. The females in particular, the females are the best actually.
2: And it's not just spear hunting. They also fish for termites with specially designed pieces of twig that they chew into shape.
5: I've tried my hand at termite fishing, but I'm really bad at it. It's not as easy as it, as it looks. The only time I've been successful termite fishing is if I find an old chimp tool on the termite mound and use that. Whenever I make my own, it's just, it doesn't work. The chimpanzees at Fongoli surprise me a lot, it's what makes my job pretty interesting. Another thing they do is that they're really calm around bushfires and fires are something they have to deal with on a regular basis.
6: Every year their territory goes up in flames. Well, historically, the wildfires would have been natural. These days, most of them are set by humans. Mostly, I'd say it's probably farmers clearing their land, which they're perfectly entitled to do. It's their land. For the chimps, it takes away everything. It takes away their nesting material. It takes away a lot of their food resources. It's quite an integral part to their story that they have to survive these things. From what I observed, the chimps are able to read the fires incredibly well.
5: I was really surprised. And my protocol is actually to stay with the chimps. If there's a wildfire around, I tell my students, you need to stay with the chimps. Don't think that you can outmaneuver the fire. We're really bad at it. And the chimps are just really calm, a lot calmer than I am around these fires.
6: They sort of don't really worry. It would kind of surprised me, I suppose, because I think, well, hold on a minute, there's a danger coming and you can hear it and you can smell it, but yet they're not fussed by it. The chimps may be relaxed around the wildfires, but Rosie and her team trying to film them had to be a little more focused. You spot it in the distance and you point and you go, Oh my God, there's a fire over there, there's a fire over there. And then you drive like the clappers to try and get there before it burnt out. Because um, they, they burn so fast, I don't know, 50 meters in about 10 seconds. And you're just standing there going, Oh, hold on a minute, and sort of running down the road with your camera, trying to keep up with it. It was extraordinarily hot. I'd say it's probably about 40 degrees during the day. And it doesn't drop much at night, I have to say. And you've got heat coming from the ground, through the ash. You've got heat coming from the sky, from the sun. And then you've got this kind of wall. It's like a massive radiator on full blast, right in front of your face. It's it's uncomfortable.
5: How big is it, Matt? At the moment, it's fairly small. But,
6: um, so we had to wear full face masks um, and goggles. So you kind of got all this contraption over your face face and head and stuff and then you kind of got to pick up the kit and sort of run into these fires there was one instance where we found this huge fire and it was just literally a wall of smoke and we're just getting ready and Mark raced in with the camera and I'd sort of be kind of coming behind with the control panel trying to like do all of the panning and tilting and focusing on the camera and you're trying to talk to each other through comms so you've got headsets and microphones and you're shouting at each other to try it because the noise of the fires is just epic. It's almost like white noise but at full volume in headphones and going straight into your brain. Mark's trying to shout the instructions to me and I'm trying to shout back. He says, Oh my God, my trouser leg's on fire. And then the comms cut out. And I was just... I had And then I couldn't... And I was like, what what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And I was thinking, oh, God, I I can't see him, I can't hear him. He told me his trousers on fire, what am I going to do? And then he sort of strolled out about three minutes later and he went, oh, no, it's fine, I put it out. It was funny, actually. At the time we were filming the fires, I just remember thinking, God, this must be so tough for them. I don't understand how they're going to survive this. When these fires are are obliterating everything that they have, how they're going to make it through to the rainy season. And then we film them through the rest of the time through to the rainy season, and and you sort of notice all these things that they do, that like termites, because the termites obviously don't die in the fires because they go underground, it's a huge source of food for that group. And it's just, you think, oh, that's actually really clever. (laughs) I'm always sort of slightly blown away by the cleverness of chimps and the intelligence of chimps it's it's they just always find a way and they always will find a way it's it's incredible one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare that's why united healthcare offers flexible budget friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where we're exploring stories of beginnings. It's hard to think of a wildfire as anything other than a force for destruction, burning up everything in its path. But fires like the ones the Fongoli chimps have to deal with can also be the precursor for another kind of new beginning. Wildfires clear away old dead foliage, open up space and return nutrients back to the scorched soil. Once the rains finally hit Fongoli, the blackened earth is quick to transform back into lush green savanna. Sometimes what looks and feels like complete devastation can pave the way for transformation.
4: I was a very proud soldier. I considered myself a professional soldier. And I've tried to carry that on to civilian world, but, you know, there's a lot of obstacles out here.
2: That's Eric Grandin.
4: Uh, Yes, ma'am. I hail from West Virginia in the United States in a little community called Ovepa.
2: Eric spent 20 years in the United States Army.
4: I enlisted when I was 19...
2: He completed six tours to the Middle East and retired in 2005.
4: Then I kind of went on a a downward spiral after leaving the uniform.
2: Like so many soldiers, Eric developed severe PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. In 2011, he suffered a horrific flashback, which left him in hospital, unable to fend for himself.
4: My oldest brother, he came to my room two days afterwards and he said, I looked like a wild beast. My eyes, you know, was constantly surveying the area. My wife, she told me that, she said, I've been married to a man for 25 years, yet I do not know him. It broke my heart. They discharged me from the hospital uh, with my wife and nine-month-old child, and there was no way I could take care of myself. I was incontinent. I couldn't comprehend English. I just basically wanted to kill myself. And I contemplated it for about two years. Every day I just, I got up and I'm like, I wonder if it's going to be the day. But
2: Eric's life was saved by something a little unexpected. His mentor, a man called Ed, persuaded Eric to get a couple of beehives. It's fair to say Eric didn't take to it straight away.
4: I put them in the box and that was the last time I'd seen him for about two years. I never went back in the box, I was scared. They just luckily survived on their own. Once I actually got in the hive for the first time, that's when the, the magic happened. You know, that's when I noticed the outside world went away. There was no intrusive thoughts, no anxiety, no depression. And we basically listened to the Hive. And for me, that sound is enough to to block out all the bad. You know, a lot of us have trouble sleeping. I actually have a recording myself, and I can listen to that, and it just puts me right to sleep. The military works in it as a unit. We all have the same purpose, the same goal, the same mission. There's no arguing, there's no bickering. I miss that. You know, that cohesiveness of the unit. Well, the honeybees have that. You know, they sting and they know that's it. But uh, they do it for the, the colony. A month and a half later, they all wash downstream. <laughs> My area, well, it's the central part of West Virginia had a horrific flood. The water came out about 50 feet and basically I'd found remnants of my hives about two miles away. Well, that was like losing everything. I mean, I had just found something that kept keep me on this side of the grass and all of a sudden it was taken away from me. I guess it's like receiving a life-saving drug you know, you start getting better and all this stuff, and all of a sudden they take the drug away.
2: But Eric wasn't sunk, not quite. It turns out beekeepers, just like bees, tend to look out for one another.
4: It was my mentor, he made three phone calls. So all of a sudden I received 20 brand new hives uh, on a truck, and I received uh, brand new queens from California. And he tells me you need to go to Georgia and pick your bees up, and I drive down to Georgia in a Jeep Cherokee, and put 360,000 bees in the back of the Jeep Cherokee, and drive home with those. And so I was back, you know, on my high again. I guess you could say I started receiving my therapy again. And uh, I, would, I couldn't, I couldn't even explain uh, how I felt when I found this out. I mean. Just, I was in awe. I mean, people had no idea who I was, but they felt it was worthy, or I was worthy enough, I guess, to save. I I hate to say it like that, but, you know, they they did it without question. They did it because, you know, they're that type of people that would just give you the shirt off their back.
2: There was one final twist of fate for Eric and the bees. Eric and his family were on holiday when a phone call came at three in the morning.
4: We had basically lost everything and uh, we brought the marshal, the fire marshal, in the very next morning and uh, he told us it was arson. My honey house, our farmhouse, there was hives still smouldering and the bees were gone of course. And then a couple days later, I started seeing a lot of activity, and I thought it was just robbing, you know, where other bees come and take over a hive and steal their food. But it uh, actually reestablished a colony. <laughs> All but two hives flew back. <laughs> it may have been a different, a different colony from somewhere else, but I didn't ask them questions. I was just tickled to death they came back. Every time, you know, you open the box, uh, it's different. It's a it's a new beginning. I start over every year.
7: <laughs> oh, spring is oh, absolutely the most well for me, my most favorite season. It is such a beautiful time of year because everything is coming back to life, um, all the colours back, all the wildflowers emerging, insects, the smell, I mean you can really smell spring when it's here. we have got new life, everything's breeding, everything looks fresh and clean and bright. I love spring, I just think it's a very special time of year. My name is Lily Moffat, and this year I worked as story lead on the BBC Springwatch series. It's Springwatch.
2: Springwatch is a bit of a televisual institution here in the UK. When the first buds start appearing on the trees, you know that somewhere there's a BBC natural history team head to toe in brown oilskins crouching quietly in some country hedgerow, ready to show the world the season unfolding. A lot of it is done with tiny remote cameras hidden away in nests and burrows. And not far from them, and only slightly less well hidden, will be Lily and her team, tucked away in the relative warmth of the truck.
7: We love our van, our story developers, and um, there's usually sort of five to six of us in there and it isn't a massive truck, so um, it does get cosy in there. Some fruity language, always, because it's like we invest so much energy and hope in these um, birds or mammals. And um, we can have upwards of 45 cameras, live camera feeds, coming through our truck. So we have to prioritise what cameras we think are going to show the most action. For example, we had um, weasels take our Yellowhammer family, um we had a stoat take our chaffinches. It was kind of carnage, really, in terms of predation this year. The most exciting stories that we had this year was probably um, plucky. Plucky was um, our great tip, and um, we had a beautiful great tip nest, which was in the bottom of a tree, in a tree hollow. And um, there were five chicks, five eggs that hatched. And we had been monitoring plucky for the week's up to the day where we thought it was going to fledge and he was sort of, he or she, uh, was developing rather slowly but you know still being fed and we thought right today's the day. Four of Plucky's siblings managed to fledge successfully and there was just Plucky left in the nest. Of course we're watching the cameras but we're also hearing a lot that's going on and um, for anyone who keeps up with nature knows a lot about birds, the jay's call is sort of Unmissable. It's very loud, very shrill. And the jay, of course, is from the Corvid family, the crow family, and they will take anything carrion or young birds, eggs, they'll take a lot of whatever they can get their claws on. So uh, we were watching Plucky and we were hearing this jay and we thought, oh gosh, is it going to happen? And in this uh, nest, we've got a really teeny tiny um, internal camera in the nest. So we were watching the outside view and the internal view. But then we suddenly saw the jay land on the nest from the outside, and uh, on the internal camera we saw the beak slowly creep into the nest, and Plucky was sort of pushed to the back of the nest. I don't know. I had that music, like the the horror music, the da da da, coming into my head because this beak is massive, and this little great it, it's teeny tiny. It really, it really was something out of uh, a horror movie. Oh gosh, she's going to have him. But it didn't. Uh the jay flew away and Plucky thought, "Right, that's it, I'm gone." So um we watched Plucky emerge from the nest and fledge and and uh, the last footage we've got is of a few rustling nettles. So we're hoping that uh, Plucky made it. We
2: don't know what happened to Plucky. Maybe he made it, maybe he didn't. But that's nature. Every new beginning has an end, eventually. The amazing thing about the natural world is new beginnings are everywhere. Every breaking dawn, every new moon, every lush new spring. Every bud on every tree, every egg buried in the sand, every drop of rain heralds the start of something completely fresh and new. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why we're so drawn to the natural world. When our lives are full of chaos and catastrophe, sometimes it's nice to remember that the dawn always comes. There's never been a winter so cold that the spring didn't come eventually. Just like the spring, this podcast has come to its inevitable end. But also just like the spring, there's another one just round the corner. Thanks so much for listening to the first BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight and I hope you'll be back for the next one when we'll be bringing you more stories from the natural world, this time about isolation. Some of the stories you heard in this podcast came from the storytellers and makers of BBC Earth's latest landmark programme, Dynasties. Narrated by Sir David Attenborough, we follow the lives of five extraordinary animals, each in a heroic struggle against rivals and against the forces of nature, fighting for their own survival and for the future of their dynasties. Visit bbcearth.com forward slash dynasties for more information on when you can catch the series in your country.